Welcome to this week's Manor House message. We are grateful you are listening with us today. It is our prayer that you will receive a fresh word from God and find encouragement for every season of your journey. Let's listen to this message from Pastor Garrett. Well, Jesus, this morning we, we just acknowledge that it's about you, not certainly about us. And uh, Lord, what a privilege for us to be in your presence this morning, just to be able to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. How's everybody doing? Some of you don't know this, but it is spring break this week in Oregon. Woohoo! Some are excited about that. There's some parents in the room a little nervous. It's going to be okay. You're going to make it through. It's going to be good. So, uh, hey, we are in week four of a series called Culture Matters. Uh, my name's Gareth, and I'm glad to be here. I'm part of the team. And uh, we're going to dive in this morning and uh, take a look at kind of the book of Daniel once again. We've been kind of using Daniel as our guide as we've been exploring what does it mean to follow Jesus in a world that seems so opposed to him. And uh, Daniel's kind of acting as our guide. And, and if you remember week one, we kind of set this thing up by talking about the fact that there's a couple of different ways that we as followers of Jesus Christ could respond to the circumstance. We could respond to what's happening in culture, what's happening in the world in which we live. Uh, and we identified the fact that it's not just something that's happening out there, but that we all experience it at varying degrees and in different ways uh, in our daily lives, and our daily routines. And so how do we respond to that? How do we live? And uh, we talked about this idea of, uh, well, we could, there's uh, this idea of separatism, right, which was that we could separate ourselves, right? We could choose to kind of live at a distance, and we, we won't engage with culture at all. We won't engage with the world, you know, and so, you know, we wake up in the morning, and we have, uh, you know, we, we brew coffee that's come from some missionary in Mexico, right? Uh, we turn on the radio and listen to only Chris Tomlin, right? And uh, we choose to live that way where we said, hey, we're going to be separate from the world, right? But then on the other side, we say, well, there's this other way that you could live, which is we use this word syncretism, which is the idea that, man, I'm just going to blend in. And, uh, and in effect, we kind of talked about this idea that culture, you know, we kind of uh, almost make culture the authority, and uh, the Bible kind of has to bend to culture. We're just going to blend in, and well, that's not what the Bible really meant. Culture, you know, that's, this is where we're, we're kind of living this way, and we're going to blend in. And in fact, some folks might not even know that you're a Christian because maybe you're blending in so well, right? Ooh, pin drop. Uh, but, right, the Lord, uh, and Daniel gives us an example of how we could live, right? And we use this phrase, uh, a creative minority. That Jesus, through uh, the work of Daniel, was showing us that we have the opportunity to live as a creative minority. And we use this definition, and it's kind of using this definition to kind of guide us through this series. This is who we want to be. This is how we want to live. And then the definition for a creative minority is this, that a creative minority is a community of believers, those who follow Jesus, who live out God's story. You know that God has a story, and we're going to dive into that today. We're going to talk about, well, what's God's story, and how does God's story compare to man's story, and what about my story, and how does that fit into all of this? What we're saying is that a creative minority lives God's story, and we don't live it the way we think best. We live it as Jesus has shown us to live it, right? Because Jesus is our Savior, but He's also our example of how we ought to live. And so a creative minority is a community of believers who live out God's story the way Jesus showed them, and this is the reason why. It's for God's glory and the good of the culture that they participate in. 
How many of you know that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has asked you, he's invited you, he's called you, he's commanded you to be salt and light, right? And so we live God's story. We don't do it the way we think best. We do it the way Jesus taught us to live God's story. And we do that so that God might be glorified and that we might be salt and light. We are here for the good of others and that God would have a purpose and a plan for us. And so we've been using Daniel as our guide as we've been exploring what does it mean to be a creative minority. And one of the keys to understanding the book of Daniel is actually found in the first chapter. There's two words that are used repeatedly in the book of Daniel, or the first chapter of Daniel, and it's simply these words, God gave. God gave. And for those of us this morning sitting in this room, hearing my voice this morning, that ought to be encouragement because the world in which you live in, right, the the circumstances that you face, you're not alone, right? That, That you can draw confidence from the fact that God is in control. And this is what we see in the book of Daniel because we recognize first and foremost that Judah was taken over by the Babylonians. It was raided and then they took Daniel and his friends back to Babylon. But what it says is in verse 2 that God gave Nebuchadnezzar Judah, right? And so God was involved. God wasn't surprised. God wasn't like, oh, what am I going to do now? God is in absolute control. God is sovereign. God has a plan. God has a purpose. God has a story that he's unfolding, and he had these guys that we're reading about, Daniel and, and Hananiah and Mishael and um, that, that, the Azariah, that they, had a, they were a part of God's story. God gave them. God placed them where he placed them in Babylon. That ought to encourage us that you're not alone, that God's absolutely in control. Even though the circumstance didn't seem to be going, it didn't seem to be ideal for Daniel and his friends, God gave them, God placed them there because he had a purpose and a plan. We also read that God gave them favor, that God gave them skill and learning. And so that ought to encourage us this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can place great confidence and trust in the fact that God is absolutely in control. Amen? And and so we're exploring this story of Daniel And uh, last week, Pastor Dylan did such an amazing job helping us look at the idea that that Daniel resolved, and there were some things that he resolved not to do. I hope you caught that last week, that that there were things, there were purposes in his heart that before he entered into a situation, entered into a circumstance, he had already purposed in his heart, man, I'm not going to do that because that would violate my relationship with God. And so this week, where last week we looked at resolve, this week we want to take a look at what was the reason behind his resolve. And I want you, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to read four verses this morning, and, uh, and just kind of unpack it and uh, let the Holy Spirit speak to us from his word this morning. And it says this in verse 17 of Daniel chapter 1, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill. There's that phrase again, God gave, God gave. In all literature and wisdom, Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke to them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in the kingdom of God. And Daniel, verse 21, was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Which means that Daniel 
God placed Daniel, and for 65 years, Daniel served in the king's court. In fact, he served under multiple kings during that time. And so God had placed Daniel there. God had given Daniel favor. God had given Daniel wisdom and skill. And Daniel worked well into retirement to serve the purpose of God in a culture that seemed to be so opposed to him, right? And so the story so far is simply this, and I've summarized it this way, that Daniel and his friends, they knew who they were and what they were called to do. They knew who they were and what they were called to do. If you remember two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Mark unpacked this idea that, uh, you know, we learn in chapter one that, that they tried, they changed the names of Daniel to Belteshazzar, and, and uh, they changed their names to Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego, right? And, and so they changed their names. They were trying to change their identity. But can I tell you this morning, because Daniel knew who he was, because he knew who his God was, it didn't intimidate him. Because what's so interesting is that Daniel doesn't seem that bothered by the fact that, well, go ahead, change my name. But I know who I am because I know whose I am. And so Daniel knew who he was because he knew his God. And I love how John Calvin says it in the Institutes of Religion. He says, man, if you want to truly know who you are, you got to know who God is. You know why? Because you are created in the image and likeness of God. And so I love that about these four guys that, that, man, you can change our name. You can try to change our identity. It doesn't bother us because we know who we are. But the second thing I want you to notice this morning is that it wasn't just that they knew who they were. They knew what their purpose was. They knew what they were. They knew how they were called to live. And so once again, we even read about it this morning. God gave them skill and understanding to learn the the philosophies and the culture and the, the way in which the Babylonians live. And so be it. It was great. No problem. We can do that. Why? Because they understood their purpose. They understood what God had called them to do and why they were there in Babylon during that time. And so I want you to recognize this morning that, man, you can try to change, they can try to change your identity. They can try to kind of brainwash you or try to kind of get you to live life a certain, a different way. But man, if you know whose you are and you know your purpose, big deal. Who cares? Because I can live from a place of conviction. But what I want you to see, and we discovered this last week, that when Nebuchadnezzar started to impinge upon their relationship with God, whoa, 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 hold on. I got to take a stand now, right? And remember, Daniel uh, was asked to, you know, you're going to eat at the king's table. You're going to eat the king's food. And for Daniel, that meant that it was going to impinge upon, infringe upon his relationship with God. It was going to cause him to violate some convictions. And man, he wanted to be faithful to the Lord. And so the story so far is simply this, that man, you can try and change our identity. You can try and re, you know, repurpose us and try to redo this. But, but Daniel understood that, man, no, my relationship to God is what, uh, what anchors me. It's what, it, it's what uh, holds me, right? And I want you to notice something this morning, that Daniel in his response to Nebuchadnezzar's chief of staff was not antagonistic. You know, sometimes as believers, we get kind of antagonistic, and we're going to fight this, and I'm going to pick at this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to go there, right? But I want you to see Daniel's response, because Daniel's response was one, not one of fighting it, not one of antagonizing, right? His response was gentle. His response was one of conviction, right? My heart is tied to the Lord. I'm going to do what the Lord has asked me to do. And then he turns to the, the chief of staff and basically says, hey, listen, I understand that this is going to put you in a difficult position, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to trust God with the outcome. And so here's the test that I want you to do. Let us just have vegetables and water. We talked about this last week, right? And what he was doing was he was putting the circumstance into God's hands. 
I don't know about you, but I oftentimes find myself putting the circumstance or the situation into God's hands and then quickly trying to take it back. You ever do that? You try to negotiate with God? But I want you to see this morning that Daniel just put it in God's hands and said, God, whatever you choose. And here's the reason why, because Daniel understood it wasn't about him. He wasn't trusting him in himself. He wasn't trusting in the system. He wasn't just trusting in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's chief of staff. He was trusting firmly and only in God. And he was living from that place. And, and oh, that we would live that way. Oh, that we would understand that, man, I'm going to live from this place of trusting in God, trusting in Jesus Christ. And I, because I'm wired the way that I am, I was thinking over the last couple of weeks, man, what was it that fueled Daniel's faith? What was it that carved out his conviction? Why did he purpose in his heart to resolve to live this way in spite of what might happen to him? And what's so interesting about Daniel is that Daniel probably spent the first 10 to 12 years. Remember, Daniel was only 16 years old, 17 years old, when, he's, when all of this stuff is starting to happen, right? And so Daniel probably spent the first 10 to 12 years of his life under the rule and reign of a king in Israel or in Judah called Josiah. And you can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. And King Josiah, there were many evil kings that chose to set up altars and worship different gods. And they kind of lived for themselves. The power went to their head. They kind of, it was all about them, right? But Josiah was called by God at eight years old and becomes this young king and reigns in Judah for 31 years. And his passion and zeal for God was unsurpassed. Josiah was the one that repaired the temple. He was the one that brought the word of God back into the center of Jewish life and, and in Judah. And, and he said, hey, we're going we're gonna to build our life. We're going to build our culture around God because it's not about us. It's about him. It's not about our story. It's about his story. And I want you to see this morning that this is where Daniel learned and developed some of those convictions so that when he stood before King Nebuchadnezzar, he was able to live a faithful life. Could I speak to parents this morning? And I'm one of them, so I'm preaching to myself. Our kids are always watching. Our kids are always taking in and processing. And I just want to ask us as parents this morning, and I'm not, I know I'm not speaking to everybody in the room, but maybe someday you're going to be a parent. Maybe someday, or maybe you're a grandparent right now, and you're going to encourage your kids and your grandkids to play a role like this. But, but I want to encourage us this morning that, man, are we recognizing that this story of life is not our story, it's God's story? Are you recognizing, and am I recognizing the fact that God has called you and I to be a part of something bigger? That there's something that he wants to do on the planet, and he's given us this great privilege of raising kids in that environment. And so I want to ask us this morning, and once again, I'm pointing the finger at myself. I'm preaching to myself this morning to say, man, are my kids seeing a dad who loves Jesus, who delights in God, who spends time with him, who spends time in his word? Or are my kids seeing someone that is willing to uh, sacrifice, maybe go with a little bit less so that I can give a little bit more? Maybe turn off the TV so that maybe I could come to prayer tonight. Ooh. Uh, maybe, you know, use some of my vacation time to actually go maybe serve some other people that are in another part of the world that maybe don't have what I have. But man, God has given me the privilege of getting vacation time. I could use that for his purposes and his plans. Amen. And so this morning, I just want to challenge us. Whose story are we living today? Are we living our story? Are we living God's story? And this is really the challenge that Daniel throws out to us in this chapter because Daniel understood that he was not living his own story. He was living 
God's story, and he had a part to play in that story. You know, as human beings, we all love stories. We love movies. Uh, last year, you're not going to believe this, this is a staggering statistic. Last year, $42 billion was spent on going to movies. How many have been to see a movie, maybe in the last week, the last month or so, you know, or you watched a movie at home, right? And we love movies. It's a big industry, right? We love stories, right? You know, Harry Potter sold like 500 million copies, uh, you know, because people love stories, right? They love to read stories. They love to identify with stories. And I want to propose to you this morning that as human beings, we were all created for story, that we crave stories. In fact, stories actually help us make sense out of life. Now, once again, you know, if you watch a movie, you know, we like to be entertained, but most movies follow the same kind of protocol, right? Which is generally, you know, there's kind of something bad. Evil seems to be overcoming good, right? And there has to be some sort of person, a hero, that comes in and kind of rescues the day, and all of a sudden, good triumphs over evil, right? And it's this idea that things are not as they were meant to be, and uh, some hero comes along, and he set, he or she, she sets things right, and now things are as they were meant to be. And the bottom line is that every single one of us in this room was created, I could say, wired for stories. We look for stories because stories help make sense out of life. You know all of us have big questions, don't we? Why am I here on planet Earth? Why is it that it seems that, man, things are not maybe as they ought to be? What is it that made it that way? Is there a way to fix that? Where do I find meaning and purpose and significance in life? That's what stories do. They help us make sense out of life. And so this is what Daniel understood. Daniel was understood that he was a part of a story. And the question was, what is his, was it his story or was it God's story? And the reality is for the world in which we live that, that there's really a couple of stories that are offered to make sense out of life, right? There's God's story and there's man's story. Now, under man's story, there's all kinds of versions, right? You know, there might be secularism, there, uh, Buddhism, atheism. Uh, there's all kinds of isms, right? That, that what they're trying to do is attempting, it's a story that's trying to make sense out of life. It's trying to answer the big questions. But I want to suggest to you this morning that all these stories, let's just call it secular stories or secular schema, there's a system, a story that's just trying to make sense out of life. And I want to suggest to you this morning that there's that, but there's also God's story. And if we could understand God's story, it would help us know how we ought to live. Because the bottom line is simply this, that the story we choose to believe will dictate how we live life. So what you choose to believe will dictate how you live life. Your actions, your words, your deeds, the way you interact, your relationships, they're all rooted in some sort of story that helps you make sense out of life. In fact, the word that, that the technical word that kind of gets used for that is worldview. And, and I don't mean for a second to, you know, maybe, well, I do. I'm going to go there, right? We're going to go to PBC class for a minute. Is that all right? Portland Bible College. We have a Bible college here, and uh, we actually offer all kinds of classes, even around this idea of worldview, to try and help students understand the stories that are trying to make sense out of life. And worldview is simply this. Worldview is a comprehensive perspective from which we interpret reality. In other words, it's like a lens through which I, I look at life. I look through this worldview and it makes sense of relationships. It makes sense of good. It makes sense of evil. It makes sense of 
what I'm supposed to do with money and purpose and meaning and significance and all of these things. And it basically tries to answer three critical questions. And the first one is this, what, what should human life in this world look like? What should human life look like? We all have kind of every human being, right? We're all looking for meaning, for community, for freedom. And, and so worldview helps us try to answer that question. The second question that it generally tries to answer is that what has knocked it off balance, right? Because we all know that the world in which we live in, it's just not quite right. I mean, we have fleeting moments of happiness, don't we? Right? There's moments when it just seems perfect. It's just the way it's meant to be. But most of life is not that way. There's trouble, there's challenges, there's difficulty, there's pain, there's hurt. And the reason why is obviously because there's brokenness that's inside of each one of us. The Bible calls it sin, right? But sin infected the world in which we live, not just inside of us, it affected among us. There's sin among us. And so some of us in the room here this morning, man, we've, we've felt the impact of that sin kind of in, in, in some, you know, kind of easier ways or, or, you know, kind of they've touched us. But there's others in the room this morning that, man, you felt the, the, the impact of that sin upon you from other people in very horrific and difficult ways. How do you make sense of that mess? What, what worldview, how does, the, how does that change our perspective? How does that answer these questions? And the third question that oftentimes worldview tries to answer is what can be done to make it Right? This mess that we experience, how can that be made right? Well, this is what worldview tries to do. It tries to answer all of these questions. And I want to suggest to you this morning that there are two stories that are being told. And one is from God and one is from man. And what's so interesting is that, that these stories are competing for our attention. They're competing for our affection. Because remember, the story that you believe will dictate how you live life. And Daniel rest, wrestled with the same thing. The early church wrestled with the same thing. You and I, living in 21st century North America, are wrestling with the same thing. There are two stories that are at war with one another, competing for your attention on how you're going to live your life. One is God's, and one is man. We might call it God's story, or the Christian schema. Schema is just another word for kind of a system of living. Or you might call it man's story or secular schema, right? It's the secular way of viewing life and seeing how that works. And I want to suggest to you this morning that there are four chapters that we discover when it comes to worldview, and we, we see these two stories. And, and the chapters are simply this. Chapter one is creation. Chapter two is fall. Chapter three is redemption. And chapter four is restoration. And, and if you have been around Bible, you've been around church, I mean, obviously, you know that the Bible is one unified story. The Bible is not, yes, yes, there are 66 books, yes, there are lots of stories, but I'm telling you this morning that this Bible is a meta-narrative. There's one story arc, there's one story that's being told, and there's one hero in that story. And, and so what we recognize is that as you read the Bible, as you begin to understand God's story, you understand that chapter one is creation. I'm going to throw a chart up on the screen. You can take a picture of it. It's in the notes. It'll be on the blog because there's a lot of material and it's really tiny. Um, <clears throat> but I want you just to see and hear the, this morning that you're being offered two stories to, be, to make sense of life. And God's story starts with creation. And you know the story in creation, right? God, who, who is Trinitarian, right? He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's this overflow of His glory and He creates the world in which we live, and he creates everything that we see around us, and, and sun, moon, and stars, and the oceans, and the mountains, and then he creates mankind, and mankind is created to reflect God's glory, right? 
And there's this word that's used. You've, you've probably heard this word. It's, the, it's a Hebrew word, and it's shalom. And shalom, if you've heard it, generally, it, it, you know, it means peace. That's generally what we know it to mean, right? But the word shalom actually means wholeness or completeness. In other words, when God created the world, when God created you and I, everything was as it was meant to be. There was no sickness, there was no pain, there was no sin, there was no destruction, there was no pride, there was no competing with one another, there was no jealousy or envy, right? Everything was as it was meant to be. And the reason why is because mankind, you and I, were actually created to be most satisfied to be dependent upon God himself. God said, everything you need, you'll find in me. I love John Piper. He says this. He says that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And this is how God created us. God created us to be satisfied, to be dependent upon him. Everything that we could ever want or need was found in him. We were fully satisfied in him. But as you know, if you've been around Bible and been around church, you know this. It lasted two chapters. Because Adam and Eve had the attention span of a two-year-old with a pixie stick. Because God said, hey, listen, I don't want you to eat of that tree right there, right? And the issue was not, oh, I got to eat that fruit, or, you know, don't eat that fruit, right? The issue was, would we choose to obey God? Would we choose to be a dependent upon God, or would we choose to de be dependent upon self? Well, Adam and Eve chose to be dependent on self, and all of a sudden, sin corrupted everything. It entered every human heart. It infected like a disease every part of God's creation. And all of a sudden, there was brokenness in us, and brokenness around us, and brokenness among us. And I love that, that, that when you understand that the, the story of the Bible was pointing to something. There was a hero that would come, and we see it right in the, we see it actually on every page of the Bible. A hero would come, his name is Jesus, he is the Son of God, and he would come as fully man, fully God. He would live the life that you couldn't live, wouldn't live, and you'll never live. And he gave himself willingly upon the cross because somebody had to pay for the penalty of our sin. And so Jesus, who was perfect in every way, spotless, sinless, went to the cross, willingly gave himself so that we might be redeemed, chapter 3. But oftentimes for us as Christians, what we do is we end right there and we say, well, I've got my golden ticket to heaven. And God wanted us to know that it wasn't about you just getting into heaven, so I'm going to try and hang on and live. No, God had a purpose that he was restoring, chapter 4. And we understand because we understand chapter 1 that all that God intended, that we were going to glorify God, that we were going to use the good things that he's given us for others so that they might experience God's goodness, God's glory, God's kindness, God's love, right? That God is restoring his purpose, which means that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've got a purpose. You've got a plan. You have a part in God's story. And so this is God's story. But what, what's so interesting is that man has developed a story that follows the exact same chapter headings. But it kind of goes like this. Chapter 1, creation is the true you. You know the you before you were corrupted by authority and parents who were started to tell you what to do and, you know, a job that required this of you. And, and so before anybody despoiled you, before anybody corrupted you, before any, that was the true you. And in that state of true you, you were experiencing ultimate pleasure and ultimate happiness because it was all about you were finding the expression that you needed to. In, in man's story, what happens is that there is, there's the fall too. 
But the fall is something that's happened to us, something that from outside of us, somebody put responsibility on us, somebody said something to us, something, something happened to us. And, and so now we're in this fallen state because we're not our true selves. And it might be that maybe you work with somebody, you know, and, and that you, maybe you've heard the statement, you know, man, I just got to go camping this weekend just to get in touch with myself. Because it's all about the search to find you, the true you, to rediscover yourself. You do you. Express yourself. Because it's all about you. And, and so this is the fall that leads to redemption, which is this rediscovery of who you truly are. What is it that makes you happy? What is it that brings you the most pleasure? Man, pursue those things because that leads you into chapter 4, which is hedonism, which is basically whatever makes me happy, that's what's most important. And what I want you to see this morning is that culture and God are offering you two stories. And if you get the story wrong, your response will be wrong because you'll live out the dictates of that story. And what I'm simply saying to you this morning is that Daniel understood, as the early church understood, that they were called to live God's story. Let me summarize it this way, because I said it this way, is that the Christian schema, or God's story, right, has as its center God, and the goal of that story is that we would die to self. And the reason why we would die to self is because my meaning comes from whose I am, not who I am, right? And so the goal of God's story is that we would die to self so that we might find true life because my meaning comes from whose I am. But the world, culture, secularism says that, hey, the goal of the story is to express yourself. Why? Because my meaning comes from who I am. How many Instagram likes I get? The car that I drive, the neighborhood that I live in, the job that I have, the promotion that I get, the vacation that I go on, how I'm able to share that and compare that with other people makes me feel better. Because it's all about, one says it's about dying to self, the other one says it's about living for self. And this is exactly what Daniel was battling with and Daniel understood, and I've, I've said it this way, summarized it this way, that secularism is progress without presence based purely on your performance. Do you know that you weren't designed to operate outside of God's presence? What satisfies you most is God's presence. You were designed for God's presence. You were designed to bring Him glory. You were designed to find your deepest meaning and purpose in the fact that you belong to Him. And this is what Daniel understood, that he was no longer his own. He belonged to Christ. And for the early church, it was the same way. It reoriented their life. And so the question for us this morning is, man, how do we find that kind of life? And the bottom line is simply this. It's in dying to self that you find true life. It's in dying to self that you find true life. You know, what's so interesting is, you know, how many of you drink kombucha? You love that stuff? That stuff is nasty. I just don't get it at all. I tell my girls, they love it, man, or at least one of them does, and she, she, my 17-year-old absolutely loves kombucha, and I'm like, man, that stuff just feels like it's been filtered through a nasty, dirty old sock. <laughs> but you know, over the last, like five years ago, you didn't even know what kombucha was, right? But now, you know the health benefits of kombucha. You know the health benefits of apple cider vinegar, right? Now, you got to make sure it has the mother, right? But basically what it is, is fermentation. Something is dying that's going to produce health and life. And this is what Jesus invited us into. You want to find true life? You want to understand your part in God's story? Man, you got to die to self. 
In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, we're told that we're to take up our cross daily. I love it. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, you got to deny yourself, and if you lose your life, you'll find it. And so the invitation that Christ puts before us is this invitation to die to self. And this is exactly what Daniel understood. Daniel understood that, that he was to die to self because the story wasn't about him. The story was about God and him playing his part in God's story. How many of you know this morning that where the culture we live in might say, hey, it's all about you expressing yourself. It's all about you living your life to the fullest. Maybe there's another story that God's called us into, a story of sacrifice, a story of denial, a story where we die to self, and in dying to self, we find true life. This is the invitation of Christ. You want to know where true life is found? It's found in dying to yourself. And this is what I love about Daniel. I love the fact that he saw it in Josiah. He saw it in Jeremiah. He, we see it in Daniel. You see it in the early church because the early church understood that, man, this isn't about us. This is about Jesus. And the second thing that I want you to just leave you with today is simply this, is that, G, that, is that Daniel, the early church, and you and I are invited into this place of delighting in the hero of the story. How many of you know this morning that you and I, we're not the hero in the story? You know that we were designed for delight? Nobody ever goes to the Grand Canyon, stands on this precipice and, and looks at this amazing view that's just bigger than life. No one stands on the edge of all of that and sees all of that and goes, look at me! No, 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 no. You were designed for delight. You were designed for that which was bigger and more beautiful and more majestic than you. And it might be found in the smallest of little cries of a, a newborn baby. It might be found in a vista at, at, uh, at the Grand Canyon. It might be on the top of Mount Hood. It might be uh, 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 on the ocean watching the wave crash in. I'm simply telling you this morning that every single one of us was designed for delight. And the question I want to leave you with this morning is, man, are you delighting in yourself? Are you delighting in the hero of God's story? There's this really interesting passage of scripture found, and we looked at it last week actually in John chapter 6. Jesus is dialoguing with his disciples, and his disciples come to him, and they simply say this, and this is found in verse 28 of John chapter 6. It says, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Isn't that humanity? Don't we often kind of approach God and say, God, what do you want me to do? What have I got to do? What have I got to do? What have I got to do to earn your grace? What have I got to do to earn your favor, to earn your kindness, to earn your love? And I love how Jesus responds because Jesus responds to them and he says this, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, believe in me. Put faith in me. Trust in me. And, and John, I love this, because John, he, he, John wrote, John, you know, the book of John, Gospel of John, and he, and he says this in John 3.16. In fact, this is the first use of the phrase, because John actually coins a new phrase in Greek as he's writing this gospel out, and he's recording the works of Jesus and the interactions of Jesus, and who is this person, Jesus, the hero of God's story? And he says, I want you to believe in and he uses a little phrase in Greek, it's pisteo eis. And, and 
What, what, what he was, normally you wouldn't use that little ace word at the end after believe in, because how many of you know you can believe in something, right? Like we could believe that the Blazers are going to win the NBA championship. It might be a remote dream, but we could certainly believe, right? And what John was wrestling with as he's writing this out in the gospel, he's saying, hey, I want you to believe. I want you, what's the right word, God? What's the right word? There's a word that describes the kind of belief that you're talking about. And he uses the word ace, which is translated, I want you to believe on. Believe on? That's kind of a weird use of that word. And the picture is simply this. Jesus says, are you willing to put the full weight of who you are on me? It's a picture of a stool that carries the weight of who I am, that I can rest in him for all that he has done for me? Am I willing to die to self and put the full weight of who I am on Jesus Christ? Am I willing to die to self in the morning rather than getting up and turning on the news and doing, I'm, I'm God, I'm gonna die to myself. Lord, my Sunday evening tonight, I'm, I'm willing to die to myself. I'm willing to put on the full weight of who I am on you. And if you've been around church for a while, you know, it can be a little bit like this because we can get around the stool and we can know everything about the stool. I can tell you about the silver base and the nice step and the kind of wooden support at the back and the padding that's right here. And I can talk about the stool. I can even hang out around the stool. Man, I love hanging with this stool. So awesome. And there's times in my life when a man, I might even, you know, I'm going to put this piece of my life on God and I'm just going to rest that piece of my life on God and I'm willing to give him this part but the invitation of Jesus Christ is are you willing to put all of who you are your meaning your significance your purpose your story are you willing to put all of who you are on Jesus Christ resting upon him are you willing to believe on him are you willing to say it's not my will, but your will. Remember, we said that a creative minority lives God's story the way Jesus showed us. Do you know that Jesus said, not my will, but your will? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus did that? Well, if I'm going to follow his example, Lord, I got to get to this place where I'm saying, Lord, it's not my will. It's your will. I'm in a place of surrender. I'm in a place of yieldedness. I'm in a place of saying, God, it's your story. It's your way. Use me however you would use me to bring glory to your name and to be used for the good of other people. But it all starts with believing on Jesus. I delight in him. I put the full weight of who I am upon him. And so I just want you to close your eyes for a moment this morning. Just lock yourself in with Jesus. Because I think that the invitation, I think the invitation that Jesus gave to those disciples in John chapter 6, he's giving to us this morning. And there are two groups of people that I want to address this morning as we close. And the first group is simply this, that, that there are those of us this morning in this room who, man, we have never put the full weight of our existence upon Jesus Christ. We recognize that there's sin. We recognize there's something separating us from Jesus. And because Jesus was God perfect, comes, lives a perfect life, and he goes to the cross and he takes the payment and penalty of your sin so that you could trust him, putting the full weight of who you are upon him. 
And so he's here this morning. And he's simply asking you, would you trust me for the first time? Would you be willing to say, you know what? I'm willing to put my entire life in your hands because I've tried everything else and it's left me wanting. And he's here this morning. And so if that's you this morning, just with every eye closed, if that's you this morning and you're saying, I want to trust Jesus. I want to put my faith in him. I want to be forgiven for my sin, this thing that separates me from him. If that's you this morning, would you be bold enough, courageous enough just to slip your hand up to heaven to say, Lord, I'm acknowledging you this morning and I want to trust you. If that's you, slip your hand up. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Is there anybody else? Come on, we're trusting Jesus. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So Jesus, this morning, we recognize that uh, your word tells us that you stand at the door and knock. And Lord, for those this morning that have lifted their hands, they've invited you in. But Lord Jesus, that as they've opened the door of their heart to you, that Jesus, you've rushed in with grace, you've rushed in with forgiveness, you've rushed in with kindness and love this morning. That Lord Jesus, they are no longer Father, those who are distant and far from you, but Lord Jesus, your word tells us that you've adopted them as sons and daughters this morning. And so, Lord, we're grateful for new life today. We're grateful that, Lord, as we acknowledge sin, that you forgive us, and that, Lord Jesus, you welcome us now as sons and daughters. That, Lord Jesus, there's new life, there's new purpose, there's new meaning, there's forgiveness, there's joy, Lord Jesus, in you this morning. And so, Lord Jesus, we celebrate with the angels of heaven this morning the life that has come to those who have given their life to you now. In Jesus' name. I want to speak to another group this morning because I think it's, um, and I'm going to speak to myself this morning because I'm standing first and foremost here for myself, that the invitation that the Lord is asking us this morning as a family, as a community of faith, is to die to self, to say, Lord, let your will be done not my will. And this morning, I simply want to offer an invitation. And if you would be courageous enough, bold enough to say, Lord, I want to do that. It's not about me. It's about me living your story. And that's where I find purpose and meaning and satisfaction to spend time with you, to live from that place. And I'm telling you what God will impart into your life. The life that you will experience this year is what he describes as the fullness of life. And if that's you this morning, and you're saying, Lord, there's some areas I just want to surrender to you this morning. I want to deny myself, and I'm asking for your grace and for your help, because it's not your effort, it's the abiding presence of Jesus that fuels all of this. And so this morning, that's his invitation to us as a family, is to simply say, Lord, I'm denying self, I'm giving this over to you, I'm surrendering to you, and I want your will and your way to be done first and foremost in my life. If that's you this morning, would you stand? I'm standing. Because I'm saying, Lord, I don't want me. I want you. Come on. Thank you, Jesus. So, Jesus, come on. Just lift our hands to heaven this morning. We're simply responding to Jesus. And, Lord Jesus, we're, we as a family this morning are simply saying, we want you. This story is about you. 
it's not about us. It's not about our plans and our will and our way, Lord Jesus. It's about you. And Lord Jesus, you are come that we might have life and that we might have it abundantly. And Lord Jesus, it's the life that you offer. It's not the life that we imagine. And so Lord Jesus, this morning, we respond to your word and we say, Lord, I'm denying myself. Unless a grain of wheat goes into the ground and dies, how can it bear fruit? Lord Jesus, the fruitfulness, the abundance, the life that you offer starts with us denying self, crucifying self, picking up our cross, surrendering to you. And Lord Jesus, as a family this morning, we are responding to you. We're saying, Lord, have your way. Move in our midst. Lord Jesus, we want to be that creative minority. A minority that, Lord, says we're dying to self that we might live your story. So, Lord Jesus, release it upon us this morning, we pray. Lord Jesus, speak to us by your Holy Spirit. What areas do we need to sacrifice? What areas do we need to bring before you? And Lord Jesus, we know that there is a grace-driven effort, a response to that which you pour into us, that Lord will let us live the kind of life that you've got in store for us. So Lord, we celebrate you this morning. We magnify you now in Jesus' precious name. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. amen. Come on. Imagine what Lord's going to do through you. A life surrendered just releases God to work in you and to work through you. And so let's walk this out. So I just want to encourage us tonight, man. We're going to have prayer. And I would love if we had to have prayer in here tonight. Wouldn't that be amazing rather than in our classrooms? And so I want to challenge us this tonight. Man, let's put feet to our faith. Let's say, Lord, I'm going to respond to you tonight. I want to pray. I want to seek your face as a church family because I think that the Lord is up to something in us that he might use us to serve and reach our community. Amen? God bless you as you go today. Thank you for listening to another Mana House message. Our hope is that you find fresh bread for your journey each time you join us here. Until next time.